How kind of our God to give us the Lord's day. One day of the week where we as the people of God have the privilege to come together to worship him. To sing songs like the song we just sung. To have our hearts encouraged by the saints. A time for us to take a brief reprieve from our regular routines, at least for a time. And no doubt we live in a fast-paced society. The appeal from marketers to consumers in our day is to do more in less time, with less effort, and perhaps more automation. It's interesting, isn't it? With just, in just a few moments, with a few taps on our smartphone, we can connect to someone on the other side of the world. It seems we have nearly unlimited access to scheduling tools, to-do list tools complete with reminders and reports of our so-called productivity. We're able to take those phones and, and tell someone where we plan to be a week from tomorrow or 12 weeks from tomorrow or a year from tomorrow. And then we're able to swipe over and, and see what the forecast is maybe for this afternoon or for the rest of the week and then we plan accordingly. And, and certainly these advances in technology have been good They've provided us great possibilities. And as people living in the 21st century, we're grateful for these things. And in one sense, they make us a unique people as we're able to do things that people in generations previous have not been able to do. And yet, we're not unlike people who have gone before us. Because we, like them, share in something we, saw, we call the human condition. You see, the heart of humans hasn't changed. We have the same nature as those who have gone many years before. And in this book that we have before us this morning, this book that we call God's Word, are written for us instruction about the human condition. And so if we're to know anything about ourselves, we must look to this book. For we believe that this book is authoritative. We believe that it is God's word and that it is sufficient for life and godliness. We believe that this book is without error. That is, it speaks truth to us. We're going to spend our time this morning in the book of James. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of James. And if you're, if you're unfamiliar with, with maybe where James is in the book, you can start in the back and work your way towards the front. So there's Revelation and then Jude and the 1, 2, 3 John and First and Second Peter and then James. We're going to be in James chapter 4 and we're going to look specifically at verses 13 to 17 together. And what we will see, though we are separated from the original hearers of this letter by some 2,000 years of technological advances, the issue that James addresses in this passage is remarkably relevant to us today. 
the concern in the passage before us is, is simply this. Man's propensity, that is our natural inclination, man's propensity to make plans without considering first who we are and who God is. And as we work our way through this passage, our hope is that we will learn that acknowledging God's providence, acknowledging God's providence enables us to make plans in a way that is pleasing to him. So if you're able, will you stand, please, this morning in honor of God? And we're going to read together from James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we come to you as people dependent upon you and so we ask that you would give us hearts and minds to understand the truth from your word show us where we need to change and give us grace to change we pray in Christ's name amen James is writing this this letter to first century Jewish Christians who've been scattered throughout the region because of persecution and, and this passage that we've just read, in this passage, it's likely that James is addressing these Jewish Christian merchants or business people who were, who were making their plans to do business as was customary to them. It was not uncommon in this, in this time, in, in the mid-first uh, century, for, for Jewish people to go from town to town to make their business, to do their business, to make a profit. Consider what their plans were. They simply said, we're going to head out today or tomorrow. We're going to go into this town or, or, you know, maybe this town. And we're going to stay there about a year. We're going to conduct our business. And we're going to make gain. This was their plan. If we were to do this today, it may be something like this. My plane leaves tomorrow morning. And I plan to arrive in Phoenix sometime in the afternoon and the convention starts the next day. It's going to be good for our business to be there. I'm hoping to make some really good business contacts. I think our presence at this convention is going to boost our sales considerably. It's going to be good for us. We make plans like this. And so the plans that that James talks about here aren't necessarily the problem. We could even say that their desire to make a profit in and of itself is not problematic. For uh, We can see that planning for the future and a desire to make an income can be marks of good stewardship. 
We think about the woman depicted for us in, in Proverbs 31. This lady gets up early. She goes to work, says she buys a field with the money that she has made. In verse 18, she, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. And in verse 25, it says, Strength and dignity, dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Here's a woman who feared the Lord. She did due diligence. She worked hard. She planned for the future as a good steward of what God had entrusted to her. Our Lord Jesus tells a parable of the ten minas in Luke 19. And in this parable, we see that those who used what they had been given to make a profit are commended, and the one who did nothing is condemned. And so we conclude that planning for the future, or even the desire to make a profit, is not in and of itself a bad thing. This is not necessarily the problem that James is addressing. The problem was the heart behind the planning. The heart behind the planning. Let's reread verse 13. And I'm going to add, we will, to help us see the problem and the heart behind the planning. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. And we will spend a year there. And we will conduct our business. And we will make gain. What's the problem here? We gain some insight into the problem as we look further at verse 14 where James says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so here, we're given some insight into the problem, and we see quite clearly our first point, that our knowledge is limited, and our lives are brief. We can give ourselves to worrying about tomorrow, can't we? And do our best to think through every possible scenario, every detail of the days ahead, and still we must acknowledge that we don't know what tomorrow will bring let alone this afternoon or even the next minute. James' statement here echoes the words of Proverbs 27. In verse 1 it says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Our knowledge is limited. The air that the recipients of this letter that James has written The error they were making had to do with with making a confident assertion about something they had no knowledge of, namely the future. They failed to recognize that their knowledge was, in fact, limited. We can give ourselves to a a particular study of a thing. We can devote our lifetime to this study and come to the end of our life and realize that we've just cracked the surface. We live in the Midwest, and agriculture is prominent here. Consider as an illustration of this, what we've learned about the way a seed is planted in the ground, and the importance of this seed getting the proper nourishment, 
just the right amount of moisture, just the right fertilizer. All of these things are important. And we've learned that in order to gain the most abundant crop, we're going to do our best to to cultivate the seed in such a way. And this is a good thing. We reap the benefits as a nation and as a world of the advances in technology such as this. But if we spoke to someone who's given his or her life to the study of the way a seed develops, they may say something like this, yes, it's been a wonderful study. And I'm glad for the many things that I've learned, but oh my, is there so much more to learn. It seems that the more we learn, the more we learn how much there is to learn. Is this not true for us? Suffice it to say that our knowledge is limited. But not only is our knowledge limited, our lives are brief. Our lives are brief. How kind of our God to remind us of this truth. We hear the words of the psalmist echoing Psalm 103 and verse 15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. And then, of course, there's that great man of God we read about, Job, who said of his own days, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. It's not often that we talk to someone someone who would say to us, my, life just seems to move along so slowly. Of course, there are times when we're suffering, where lives are intensely difficult and perhaps in those times the days seem to drag on. But if we were to back up and look at our lives as a whole, we would quickly recognize that our lives are indeed brief. They're short. Moses, writing in Psalm 90, says the years of our life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, 80. If we make it 80 years. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So James asks the question, what is your life? It's appropriate for us to ask the question this morning. What is our life? Answer? You are a mist. A vapor puff of smoke. We see this happening. You can, you can take a pot. I don't do much cooking. Um, ask my children. I, I've, I've been banned from the kitchen, um, probably for good reason. Um, but I do know this. If you take a, a, a pan of water and you set it on the stove and you turn the stove up, and you go and observe what happens there, you see the little bubbles begin to form as the water heats up. And uh, as that water comes to a boil, what happens? You start to see the moisture rise into the air. And just like that, as, as soon as it rises, it 
it dissipates, doesn't it? Or think about a birthday. What happens on a birthday often? Someone will have a cake of some kind, and we poke some candles in there. We light those candles. We sing to the person, and then what? What do they do? They blow the candles out, and on each one of those little candles, a little puff of smoke rises up into the air, and then it's gone. This is a picture of our lives. And since this is true, that our our lives are only a puff of smoke, a vapor, how foolish it is for us to make claims about what we're going to do, not knowing when our lives will end. The problem that James is addressing here is the heart behind the planning. It's the heart that forgets that we are finite, frail human beings. Perhaps you're familiar with the old poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley, written in the late 1800s. The poem ends with these words, I am the master of my fate. You know what comes next. I'm the captain of my soul. But that's not true. We're not the master of our fate. We're not the captain of our soul. Our knowledge is limited. And our lives are brief. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we don't know the day when we will breathe our last breath. It was a Monday morning, February 1st, 2016, when I got a phone call, the one that no one wants to get. And on the other end was my mom telling me through tears that earlier that morning, my brother had died in his sleep. No warning. No preparation, only finality. You see, no one knew when he closed his eyes that night that his eyes wouldn't open in the morning. It's sobering. It's sobering for us to think about the brevity of life. Is it any wonder? That Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, exhorted us in this way. He said it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For this, he says, is the end of all mankind. None of us escapes death. Our knowledge is limited, and our lives are brief. The problem in the planning for these first century recipients of this letter was arrogant presumption. They were presuming on another day, another opportunity to go to this place, to make a profit. We were, they were confident that the plans that they had made were sure to come to pass. Sadly, they had forgotten. They were finite. They were limited. We're not unlike them. Who of us in the past week hasn't made plans, confidently made plans for what we're going to do, 
where we're going to go without giving any thought to whether or not we would even see tomorrow. Oh, we say, but there is so much to do. There are tasks that need to be completed. I have appointments that I have to make. There are orders to fill. I have places to go and problems that need to be solved. But have we forgotten who we are? We are finite creatures dependent upon holy God for every breath. Our Savior told a parable in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read a few verses, beginning in verse 16. It says, and he told them a parable. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The man in the parable failed to acknowledge that his life was a vapor. He was busy. He was busy pursuing all the things that were going to bring him fullness of life, comfort, pleasure. All the things that were going to bring meaning and purpose to his life, but he neglected the most important thing, namely his standing before God. And so it's right for us to consider our lives this morning. Have you considered your life? Or do we find ourselves scurrying about, making plans with no regard for God? Have we forgotten that our knowledge is limited and our lives are brief? So how are we to make plans in a way that's pleasing to God? How do we do this? This brings us to our second point. We do so by recognizing that our plans are dependent on the providence of God. Our plans are dependent on the providence of God. James says in verse 15, he says, Instead, instead of making these these confident assertions with no regard... For God, we will, we will, we will, we will. Instead of doing that, you should be saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Let's think for a moment, what what are we communicating when we say, if the Lord wills? What are we communicating when we say, I plan to do this, Lord willing, To begin, when we do this, we're acknowledging God's proper place of lordship. We're acknowledging God's proper place of lordship. 
his proper place of sovereignty, his proper place of providence. From beginning to end, the scripture attests to the lordship of God in all things. In fact, the very first words of the scripture, we know them. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. If you haven't taken a moment to just consider those words, do so now. Consider the fact that we have a creator. We thank God for where we are and all the advances in technology and the great benefit we receive from these advances. We're sitting in a climate-controlled room right now. That's a good thing, isn't it? I'm speaking into this microphone, and it's being amplified so you in the very back and all the way in the top, you can hear me. Most of us drove here in vehicles where we put the key in, or maybe you just push a button now, and the car starts, you put your foot on the pedal. And if you didn't know the way to this place, what do you do? You punch it into your phone or you type it into the GPS on your, in your car and someone can even tell you turn by turn how to get here. Right? So these are, these are good things. We're glad for it. But we mustn't be deceived in the midst of all the great things that we're able to do and all the great things we're able to accomplish We mustn't be deceived thinking that we are in control. God is the creator. We are sustained. We're upheld by him. We're sustained by his power. And so the Bible opens with these words in the beginning, God. And if we go all the way to the end of the Bible, the last book, the book of Revelation, And the last chapter in the book, we see there the Lord saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Our God is the first and the last. When we say, if the Lord wills, we acknowledge God and his proper place of lordship. We recognize his providence. What do we mean by this word, providence? If we're to say that our plans are dependent on the providence of God, we need to understand what we mean by providence. And it can be a helpful exercise for us as we seek to understand the meaning of a word, a word such as providence, to consider how have God's people throughout the history of the church, how have they labored to define a term such as this? And we're helped in our understanding of this word providence by going all the way back to the middle of the 16th century. I'm going to read to you question 27 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number 27 asks this. What do we mean by providence? Answer. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, 
but from his fatherly hand. Note that last phrase. All things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. God is not a distant deity. One who has given the the world a divine spin. And he sits back with arms crossed, watching to see the way that things will turn out. Our God is an all-knowing God. He sees all things. He's ordered all things, he tells us, according to the counsel of his will. He's concerned about the most intimate, minute details of our lives. We read in Matthew's gospel, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The providence of God is a comfort for the believer. Our Lord says in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or we remember the familiar words, words that we should recall to mind often. In Romans 28, you know where I'm going, verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, for those who love God and are called, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God has a plan for his children. He's conforming us to the image of his Son. Pause and consider this fact, that if you're a child of God this morning, he's working all things in your life for good. He's removing the dross. It's that picture. Scraping the dross off the top. He has his hammer and chisel. And he's chiseling off the rough areas in our life. When we say, Lord willing... We're acknowledging God in his proper place of lordship. But we're also acknowledging our proper place. Our proper place, that of submission and dependence. We're creatures. We've been created, and as such, we've been called to live in submission to our creator. Our duty, indeed our privilege, is to submit to the one who made us. In our fallenness, and this word submission, uh, it, it causes us to bristle a bit. Because we think that, that somehow, in, in our desire to be an autonomous people, we want to say, uh, any kind of submission is bad. 
I'm going to do things the way I want to do things. Thus, our making of plans without regard for God. We forget our place of, of submission to our Creator. The one who has created us in his own image. Our place is that of submission. And might I add, joyful submission? Joyful submission? Will we not gladly submit to the one who pursued us when we were dead in our trespasses and sin? The one who sought us out when we were running from him? When we were buried in the filth of ourselves, the muck of sin, the one who came to us and scooped us up and cleansed us, gave us the righteousness of his son. He set our feet on a rock. Will we not gladly submit to him? Will we not gladly submit to the one who sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, to come to this earth and live a life that we could never live? The one who went to the cross and there took the penalty that we deserve so that through faith in him we could be set free. Will we not submit to him? It's a joyful submission. Will we not joyfully surrender to the one who offers eternal life to all who will turn from sin and put their trust not in themselves, not in the things that they've done, but in Christ alone? Certainly, our place, our proper place, is that of submission, but not submission only. We're in a place of dependence We're absolutely dependent upon God for every breath. We do something this morning. Even the young ones can do this. Take your hands like this and and put your fingers right right here under your neck. And just, just sit real still. You feel something going on in there? We hold this thump, thump. There's a heart beating in our chest this morning. And we're breathing. And that heart is pumping oxygen in our blood. And that blood is pumping through our veins. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? We are dependent upon God for every breath. We know that when this heart stops beating, death is soon to follow. We praise God again for the gift of modern medicine. And yet, with all the advances, none is able to sustain a life apart from God. It's arrogant for us to make plans And presume upon tomorrow when we ourselves are dependent creatures. We are dependent upon God for physical life, for certain. But we're dependent upon God for spiritual life. 
Is not the cross of Jesus Christ the clearest display of man's dependence on another for spiritual life? You say, what do you mean? It's impossible for anyone on his own to reconcile himself to God. Something we can't do. The cross shows us our need. Only the eternal Son of God could pay the price sufficient to cleanse all who would believe from the stain of sin. It's only because of the work of Christ on our behalf that we can be declared righteous before a holy God and to be brought back into a right relationship with Him and that by faith alone. Consider your life this morning. Have you been declared righteous by holy God? Have you received the righteousness of Christ by faith alone? Today is the day of salvation. And the call is for all to come, to repent That is to turn from sin and to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift of eternal life. So we make our plans and we recognize that our plans are dependent. Our plans are dependent on the providence of God. And so we say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. We have to remember this phrase, uh, if the Lord wills or Lord willing, it's not something we just tack on to the end of a statement as if we're checking a box. It speaks to the condition of a heart. A heart, a humble heart who recognizes I'm dependent. A heart that acknowledges God's proper place of lordship and our proper place of submission and dependence. So we understand our knowledge is limited. Our lives are brief. And we understand that our plans are dependent on the providence of God. Finally then, in light of these things, we must acknowledge that failure to submit our plan to the providence of God is sin. Failure to submit our plans to the providence of God is sin. The concern for these hearers of this letter from James is that they're boasting that they were boasting in their arrogance. One writer says, the businessmen addressed by James were proud of their arrogant assumption that they could foresee and control the future. Not only were they making confident assertions about the future, but they were boasting in those assertions. They gave no thought for God. They were thinking and speaking in a way consistent with the world and the world's system that sees autonomy and independence and material gain as as really living. James says you boast in your arrogance. He says you're, you're, you're acting like the world. And this boasting is evil. J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase, says this, As it is, 
You get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. That sort of pride is wrong. James concludes then, to know the right thing to do and fail to do it, this is sin. Certainly this principle of knowing the right thing to do and failing to do it can be applied to all areas of life, many areas of life. But here in this context, we might say the failure to submit our plans to the providence of God. When we fail to do so, we presume that we're in control. We learn here that this is sin. It's offensive to God. So how do I know? How do I know if I have indeed submitted or if I am submitting my plans to the providence of God? Maybe a few, a few things for us to think through. How do I know? One of the things to consider is this. When plans go the way that we intended, are we quick to give glory to God? Do we thank him for his kindness? Or do we slap our own back? Even if ever so subtly and congratulate ourselves for being so astute to see what may happen and make a right decision. How about when things don't go the way that we plan? How do we respond? Do we respond in anger and frustration? And if so, it's not likely that we've submitted our plans to the kind providence of God, the one who is working all things for our good. A third way, as I consider my plans, am I anxious? Am I anxious? Perhaps you have a follow-up appointment this week. You're going to meet with a doctor. You've kind of set a plan for what this appointment may look like. But to submit our plans to the Lord is to say, Lord, I would love to hear a good report this week. But I trust you. I rest in your good plan for my life. Or maybe there's a a second job interview this week. Are you anxious? Or do we submit our plans to the kind providence of God? You're waiting on a home inspection so you can move forward with the purchase of a new home. And you don't know how the inspection is going to go. Submit our plans to the providence of God. Finally, a fourth way, and this is kind of a summary question, do we hold our plans with open or loose hands, open or closed hands? Do we jostle and fight to make sure that my plans do indeed come to pass? Or do we do due diligence and rest in God and trust him? This includes all areas of our lives, my retirement, my 401k, my children's education, the business ventures, that much-needed date night with my spouse, the difficult conversation I'm going to have tomorrow with an employee, 
A final question for us to think through as we seek to apply the truth of God's word this morning. How do I cultivate a heart that delights in submitting my plans to the providence of God? We must start here. You must confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is the starting point. It's only through faith in Christ that a person can be reconciled to God. And so if you haven't done this, then the God of this world, little g, the God of this world who says, be independent, get all you can get, is still blinding your eyes. You cannot see clearly. And in this condition, you will only understand submitting your plans to the providence of God to be some sort of grueling, cumbersome, restrictive burden. But this is not the way for the believer. We read in 1 John that God's commandments are not burdensome. But if you do confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you can, we can, by God's grace, and in the power of the Spirit, cultivate a heart that delights in submitting our plans to the providence of God. Well, how do we do this? One is we seek to know him. God has revealed himself in this book. We seek to know him in his word. We, we spend time with him alone. As we plan for the week, of, week ahead, plan for time with our God A second way is to cultivate, a, we cultivate a heart that delights in submitting our plans to the providence of God is to gather together like we're doing this morning, to spend time with God's people, worshiping together, hearing the word of God, praying with the saints, singing with the saints, participating in the Lord's Supper together, witnessing baptism these are means that God has given us to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Savior. And as we do so, we understand more and more of his good plans for our life and we gladly submit to him. Finally, we seek to imitate our Savior. Our beloved Savior, did not our Lord demonstrate for us the supreme example of joyful submission there in the garden when he said before his death, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. By God's grace, as we make our plans for the week ahead and for the year ahead, may we say, we will do such and such a thing if the Lord wills. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life because of what Christ has accomplished. Will you help us as we go from this place to submit our plans to you, trusting your good providence for our lives. We'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.